Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Rational Podcast. In our premiere episode, on September 19, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood up in the House of Commons to accuse India of the murder of Hardeep Singh Najjar, a Canadian citizen and Khalistan advocate on Canadian soil. The very day that Trudeau made these accusations, I wrote to Brian Passafume, Parliament Bureau reporter with Canada's National Post, and in an interview at 3 a.m. India time, Mr. Passafume and I discussed a bunch of things, including whether allegations, as opposed to evidence, can even be credible. I can stand here right now and, and accuse you of killing my mother, but without proof, it doesn't really mean anything. Whether Trudeau had political points to score in making these accusations as publicly as he did. The Sikh voting bloc in Canada is so important that, as you can see, politicians will will live and die to get it. What this episode tells us about where India and Canada stand in the hierarchy of international power politics. I think that Canada is coming to the grips that the world cares more about India than Canada right now, and I think that Prime Minister Modi understands that. And finally, what this episode means for ordinary Sikhs. All over the world. But before we begin, allow me to paint a historical backdrop for this episode. The year is 1985. India is still adjusting to the void left in its politics by the assassination of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. By her Sikh bodyguards in October of the previous year. Good evening, Indira Gandhi, ruler of the world's largest democracy, died today, shot down by two of her own bodyguards. This was how India first heard the news of the murder. We regret to announce the death of the Prime Minister, Mrs. Indira Gandhi. She was critically injured this morning at a residence when she was. The assassination was revenge for Mrs. Gandhi's decision to send in the Indian Army to hunt down armed Khalistani separatists who had taken shelter inside Amritsar's Golden Temple, Sikhism's holiest shrine. Following the assassination, there were anti-Sikh riots across northern India, but particularly in Delhi. But already tonight, the tensions between the majority Hindus and the Sikh community are spilling over into violence. Buses have been burned, and Sikhs attacked, and many have gone into hiding. The entire episode would thrust Punjab into a decade of insurgency, counterinsurgency, human rights violations, and political instability, ending only in the mid 1990s, by which time support for the Khalistan movement had either been crushed or had died down. But back to 1985, in Canada, Air India Flight 182 takes off from the Toronto Pearson Airport and is en route to London, from where it is scheduled to depart to India. Now, even if you've not heard of this incident, you already know that this does not end well. A bomb placed in an unaccompanied suitcase explodes mid-air, killing all 329 passengers aboard off the coast of Ireland. At daybreak today, the bodies of more than half the people on board the jet were still missing in the seas off the coast of Kerry. Every available helicopter was scrambled to help in the search for the bodies. Each piece of wreckage is vital to the team of investigators. They could provide the crucial forensic evidence to confirm that a terrorist bomb was planted on board the Air India jumbo. Most of these passengers were Canadian citizens, many of whom were on the plane to visit families in India. 
The bombing remains the worst terrorist attack in Canadian history. They did find today a tragic reminder of the number of children who died in the crash. A little girl's rag doll. Even this could provide clues as to the cause of the crash. As you've already likely guessed, Khalistani militants carried out the attack in revenge for the storming of the Golden Temple and the anti-Sikh pogroms that followed. The Air India bombing was the first time that Khalistani separatism operating from Canadian soil had been thrust into the spotlight. And on September 19, the same spotlight was cast again when Justin Trudeau stood up in the House of Commons to accuse India of the murder of Hardeep Singh Nijar. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Canada has declared its deep concerns to the top intelligence and security officials of the Indian government. Last week at the G20, I brought them personally and directly to Prime Minister Modi in no uncertain terms. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. Mr. Nijjar was the president of a Sikh Gurudwara in Surrey, British Columbia and was responsible for organizing referendums asking the Sikh diaspora if they supported the creation of a separate state of Khalistan. These referendums obviously had no real bearing as far as India was concerned. But some have argued that the Sikh diaspora's turnout in these referendums was concerning for New Delhi. On June 18, Mr. Nijjar was shot and killed in his truck by two masked gunmen in the parking lot of his gurudwara. Hundreds of community members and supporters of the Khalistan movement came together, all to commemorate the life of Hardeep Singh Nijjar. Mourners gathered at the Guru Nanak Singh Gurudwara for a final goodbye to Nijjar and say they won't be silenced. It was in this context that I sat down to interview Mr. Pasifume and asked him what he made of Trudeau's decision to accuse India of murder. Okay, are we good to go? Yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. So, Mr. Pasifume, my first question to you is about the manner in which Trudeau accused India, right? Because I'm certain that we'll discuss the content of his accusations throughout the course of this conversation. Trudeau talked about. "Quote unquote credible allegations," but some in India were quick to point out that allegations are never credible; that evidence is credible. Our foreign minister S. Jaisankar he said this as well. My understanding is the word used by the Canadians is allegation. We've always said that look, if there is information, let us know. So our you know our doors. I want to make one thing very clear: it's not that our doors are shut to looking at something. if if uh, there is a requirement for us to look at something we are open to looking at it but you know i then expect you know somewhere uh, some pointer something for me to look at so that does raise the question right why did trudeau accuse india as publicly as he did given that the investigation is still ongoing that no arrests have been made and that the evidence hasn't been tabled either in the house or before a court Do we know what might have prompted him, or do we know what his reasoning might have been? 
That's a very important question that needs to be answered. There's been a lot of theories, like, for example, our competitor newspaper, the Globe and Mail, they went public with a story roughly about the same time that the prime minister spoke in parliament. Now, what I've heard is that so the prime minister's office was was kind of taken by surprise by this, and they, they wanted to get ahead of it as quick as possible. But right. yeah, the kind of the audaciousness of standing on the floor of Canada's parliament to make these accusations was, it didn't go unnoticed, not only obviously in your country, but ours too. And you mentioned evidence, and that's kind of where a lot of questions are coming up, because you're right, this is an incredibly serious accusation for one country to make against the other. But when you look at other situations similarly, like, for example, in 2018, when uh, President er Erdogan of uh, Turkey accused Saudi Arabia of killing uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi and uh, the the Turkish embassy, he he laid out his case in an op-ed in the Washington Post. He he laid out that in Turkish... Turkish intelligence had audio recordings from inside the embassy. They had surveillance footage showing Khashoggi, you know, right before the killing, walking up to the embassy to get his visa. A lot of situations like that where countries accuse another one, they have evidence. But kind of an unusual thing with the Trudeau government is that there's a lot of situations of where he just wants people to take him and his government like just say, take our word for it. This is what's happening. Well, we can't tell you, we can't show you why. So you just kind of have to take our word for it. And sort of, hey, just trust me is kind of a a well-worn plank in the, the Trudeau government right now. And I think that, you know, it might've worked fine in previous situations, but I think when it comes to such a serious accusation like this, I don't think just trust me is good enough. Right. Don't get me wrong. If the allegations are true, it's terrible and it needs to be investigated. But at the same time, as I mentioned before, there's, all the other cases that situations like this happen in the world, there's been some sort of proof. And, you know, when your government rightfully demanded that proof, the prime minister just said, you know, hey, just trust me. That's not always good enough. Yeah. It's and not. it definitely isn't good enough for the Indian people. Like, for example, you know, I woke up this morning and I saw that India had suspended visa service in Canada. So any Canadian citizens who want to travel to India to visit family or tourism, whatever, unless they had a visa, they can't do that anymore. Yeah, you're right. Um, And it's interesting to me that you mentioned Khashoggi. Well, that was the first parallel that came to my mind as well. I think I make a couple distinctions in that one. Khashoggi was personally critical of Saudi Crown Prince MBS, whereas Mr. Najjar and the Khalistani movement concerned India's sovereignty as a whole, right? And two, while India may not have a stellar human rights record, I'd like to think that we certainly have a better one than that of Saudi Arabia, making these accusations even more serious. And it's also interesting to hear you say that Trudeau has taken a sort of, hey, just trust me approach without presenting any evidence, because that seems to validate criticism that Trudeau has had political points to score in making these accusations. You know, even Jay Shankar said this. Our concern is that, uh, you know, it's, it's really been very permissive uh, because of uh, political reasons. Uh, so we have a situation where actually our uh, diplomats are threatened. Uh, Our consulates have been attacked uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and often comments are made about, uh, you know, there's interference in our uh, politics. Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, a lot of this is often justified uh, as saying, well, that's how democracies work. So my question to you is, how relevant is the Sikh vote in Canada? And do criticisms of politics of appeasement, of vote bank politics, phrases that often are used in 
the context of Indian politics. Do these criticisms hold any water here? I think this, the the government is definitely open to criticism about things like you know is this a means to score political points? Uh, like for example, the the sick vote in Canada is quite significant. For a long time, that voting block was reliably liberal. That's changed over the years. I think that uh, you know the the Canadian Liberal government's swing to a lot of left leaning policies has alienated a lot of sort of the the ethnic vote that traditionally has voted liberal and is sort of moving away. Okay. Uh, plus, you know. Prime Minister Trudeau is is tanking in the poll numbers right now. His approval ratings have never been lower. It's lower than a lot of other leaders that bowed out and and resigned their posts, you know, before that. Wow. Okay. I think there was a, a very brief moment of unity when he announced it because you know politics in Canada is very bitter right now, and it was a rare moment of unity across all the parties when he made the announcement. But now that it's over, it's just like I think people are saying, okay, well, that's all fine and good for you to say. I can stand here right now and, and accuse you of killing my mother wow, but okay. without proof it doesn't really mean anything so yeah the, the, there's a lot of questions here like is trudeau's whole india policy based on trying to appease that that sick vote and i think that's i think that's a legitimate question i i can't say yes or no if that is definitely the case here but it definitely hmm. is something that, that is worth questioning i think it's incredibly naive if, if if this is the case for the for the canadian government to you know to be more tolerant of Khalistan instead of targeting it nor must we countenance that political convenience determines responses to terrorism extremism and violence similarly respect for territorial integrity and non-interference in internal affairs cannot be exercises in cherry picking when reality departs from the rhetoric we must have the courage to call it out hmm so it's interesting to hear you say that this moment comes when trudeau's poll numbers are tanking and when the sikh community's voting patterns are changing so that makes me wonder what stance have the conservatives taken on this and particularly with conservative leader Pierre Polyev what's his stance was of Khalistani extremism yeah it's something we've tried to get out of them the conservatives have been quiet about it because they're kind of in this, a similar situation as the liberals because i remember about god maybe about 10 12 years ago there was a big shift in the ideology of, of Canada's Sikh population they were reliably liberal voters uh but a lot of things happened where a lot of them switched their support to the conservatives hmm. and there's a lot of Sikhs in Polio Shadow cabinet okay Tim Mapal is a a prominent long-time MP out of Edmonton you know he's he's 5k turban wearing Sikh oh. uh Jazraj Singh Halan is another key part of Polio's cabinet and he's a, a Sikh as well a lot of growing support in the Sikh community for the conservatives so i think that that, that Mr Polio is kind of stuck in in a similar situation he wants to be careful of what he says because he doesn't want to alienate that support because the Sikh voting bloc in Canada is so important that as you can see politicians will will live and die to get it because wow. not only is it a large voting block it's a, a loyal voting block like mm. the, the Sikh community is very very close knit they tend to band together closely i think that's why even though Jagmeet Singh is the NDP leader there's not a whole lot of NDP support among the Sikh community it takes more than just having a Sikh leader to appeal to that community right Polyev has a has to weigh his words carefully because the last thing he wants to do is to alienate that voting block. And the prime minister needs to come clean with all the facts. We need to know all the evidence 
possible so that Canadians can make judgments on it. Did you just expel the Indian diplomat? Should they do more in response to this news? I think we need to see more facts. Um, the Prime Minister hasn't provided any facts. Uh, he, uh, he provided a statement, um, and I just emphasize that he, he didn't tell me any more in private than he told Canadians in public, so we want to see more information. What is the risk if he doesn't provide more information or these allegations are found somehow to be untrue or uncredible? What is the risk? Real. But what specific information, what specific facts do you think Canadians and yourself need to know in this situation? We need to have uh, the evidence that drew, the, that allowed the Prime Minister to come to the conclusions he made yesterday. Do you agree with the government's decision to go public with the intelligence, and if so, why? I would, I would have to have more uh, evidence to make a, a judgment. I'm not saying that all policy in Canada lives or dies by impressing the Punjabi population, but I think it's definitely, definitely a consideration. Wow. So I'm curious as to how we came to that, because traditionally, and this is a global phenomenon, right? Right-wing politics hasn't been known to be very welcoming of minorities, especially when they are visibly and markedly different. But at the same time, in the last few years, there's this trend where politicians on the right are making a pitch to these minorities. So in the United States, you have Republicans trying to woo Hispanic and black voters, while also at the same time continuing the rhetoric against these groups. So my question is, I wonder how conservative politics works with regard to the Sikh community in Canada. Is the Canadian right wing some sort of a global exception in that it has not tried to overtly vilify and otherize the Sikhs to sort of frame them as enemies in pushing a nationalist agenda, in pushing this idea of a white Canadian nation of sorts? I like to see it more as conservative politics rather than right-wing politics. I think labeling it like right and left-wing, I think it could be a bit inflammatory. I think that it's it's more about a lot of the immigrant communities in Canada, like the Sikhs, Muslims, they hold very socially conservative views. They mm. hold views that align closer to conservative ideals rather than liberal ideals. And right. we saw that yesterday in Canada, there were marches across Canada, you know, against uh, perceived indoctrination of gender identity in schools. Things like allowing children to change their gender and schools are by policy forbidden to tell the parents. A large aspect of that movement were a lot of the Muslim community. And I saw a lot of Sixth Net as well. Like there was a huge march in Ottawa. I'm, I live and work in Ottawa. There was a large march on Parliament Hill yesterday and like, it took almost 20 minutes for the march to, to go by our office. There's a lot of Muslims, a lot of whites, but a lot of turbans in the crowd too. And I think that to to say that right wing equals racism in North America, that's definitely changed. Hmm. The conservative movement, particularly in Canada, is seeing a lot of non-white faces joining the movement. That's kind of reflective of how Canada is changing as a society, is that Canada's immigrants are sort of weaving themselves into the entirety of Canadian culture and the entirety of Canadian ideology, which I think it's healthy for any country to do. So that's definitely is a consideration that, that Mr. Polyev has to take is that the face of Canada is changing and it's sort of adapting conservatism to adapt to all culture rather than just being, you know, the image of the white racist redneck. Right. So if the Sikh community is seeing a sort of appeal in conservative ideology, then I wonder where all of this leaves the new Democratic Party and its leader Jagmeet Singh. Because, you know, the criticism that's coming from India is that Justin Trudeau runs a minority government, that he does not have the numbers in parliament, that he depends on support from Jagmeet Singh, who has in the past attended pro-Khalistan rallies, right? I spoke with Hardeep Singh, Nidra's son, and I could hear the pain of that loss in his, in his voice. And I can only imagine how much more painful it is going to be knowing of this potential connection. 
On a personal reflection, I want to share with you what this means to the Sikh community. I grew up hearing many stories that if you raise concerns about human rights violations in India, that you might be denied a visa. That if you went back to India, you could suffer violence, torture, and even death. I grew up hearing those stories. But to hear the Prime Minister of Canada corroborate a potential link between a murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil by a foreign government is something I could never have imagined. So how much influence does Mr. Singh really exercise? Yeah, the uh, the current government is a minority government, and it's being propped up by a deal with uh, the NDP and, and Jagmeet Singh, and and you know that, that's some of the questions that people naturally naturally ask. Um, the thing is that when it comes to Canadian politics, the NDP are kind of a, a minor party compared to the Liberals and the Conservatives. Hmm. The, like the NDP have never been in power, uh, at least federally. Okay, they they don't really have the support base. They're they're kind of a really far left-leaning party. There's a lot of left-leaning Canadians, but obviously not enough to put them into power. Hmm. This opportunity is a chance for for the NDP and to, for Mr. Singh to, to push policies that otherwise wouldn't have gotten the light of day. There's an affordability crisis in Canada right now. Like Inflation has put the cost of living up so high, cost of food, cost of housing. Like To buy a house in Canada now, it's well over a million Canadian dollars. Wow. And... So Mr. Singh is pushing through a lot of affordability measures. Yeah, I saw Mr. Singh's Twitter profile and he seems to voice more of a socialist critique of the government, attacking Trudeau on things like inflation and cost of living, all the things that you mentioned. Which is strange to me because Trudeau's government would literally collapse without Mr. Singh's support. So I guess I'm trying to ask... Is there a world in which the NDP may pull out of its agreement with the Liberals, thereby toppling Trudeau's minority government, maybe even over this very issue, say arguing that, you know, Trudeau didn't do enough to pressure India, Trudeau didn't go after India, that Trudeau went soft? I want people to know that as leader of the New Democratic Party, I will use every tool at my disposal to ensure that Canada uses every tool every tool and every power of a democratic nation to bring those responsible to justice. I, th- I think that's always a possibility. I think that's something that Jagmeet Singh has always held over the prime minister. Hmm. I don't think this issue is enough for him to, to pull that agreement, but who knows? You never know. You know, it's at what point will, will things get to the breaking point? Because I don't think Mr. Singh realizes that like, he's the most powerful man in Canada right now. Like he wow. holds, like he controls his government at this, this government lives or dies based on his whim. Like he could decide tomorrow to suspend the agreement, one non-confidence vote in the House later, and the government's dissolved. And hmm. There's an election. So I think that I think that's that's a lot of power for for one man and one party, particularly a party that's has never had a shot at power in Canada and probably never will to be able to, to flex those muscles. Right. And so to rephrase what you just said, and this is purely from New Delhi's perspective, The kingmaker in Canadian politics today is Jagmeet Singh, a man who has been vocal about his support for the Khalistani cause in the past. I want to speak directly to people of Indian descent who have come to Canada. Governments around the world are trying to silence you. The Indian government and the Modi government specifically is attempting to silence you. But truth cannot be silenced. Justice cannot and will not be silenced. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't think that... The cost on issue will be enough for him to 
abandon that. Like if it would be, it'd be on the front page of every story tomorrow. Right. Accusations that, that Mr. Singh is a secret Khalistani activist. I don't think that's the case. I, th- I think that uh, things are t- going too good for him right now for him to, to pull the pin on it. But, hmm. you know, it's definitely in everybody's mind and it's foremost on Prime Minister Trudeau's mind that his government operates pretty much at the pleasure of Jagmeet Singh. ਜਿਹੜਾ ਹਿੰਦੁਸਤਾਨ ਦੀ ਹਕੂਮਤ ਬਹੁਤ ਜ਼ੁਲਮ ਕਰਦੇ ਨੇ ਪਰ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਕਦੇ ਨਹੀਂ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਸੀ ਕਿ ਇੱਥੇ ਆ ਕੇ ਕੈਨੇਡਾ ਚ ਇੱਥੇ ਆ ਕੇ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਇਹੋ ਜਿਹਾ ਖਤਰਾ ਹੋ ਸਕਦਾ ਮੈਂ ਸਾਰਿਆਂ ਨੂੰ ਇਹ ਕਹਿਣਾ ਚਾਹੁੰਦਾ ਕਿ ਮੈਂ ਇੱਥੇ ਹੈਗਾ ਆ ਤੇ ਜਿੰਨਾ ਕਿ ਮੇਰੇ ਤਾਕਤ ਹੈਗਾ ਮੈਂ ਹਟੂਗਾ ਨਹੀਂ ਸੋ ਥਿਸ ਇਜ਼ ਨਾਟ ਜਸਟ ਅ ਡਿਪਲੋਮੈਟਿਕ ਨਾਈਟਮੈ ਬਟ ਆਲਸੋ ਅ ਡੋਮੈਸਟਿਕ ਪੋਲਿਟੀਕਲ ਨਾਈਟਮੈ ਫਾਰ ਟਰੂਡੋ ਐਟਲੀਸਟ ਅਸ ਫਾਰ ਐਸ ਹਿਸ ਪੋਲ ਨੰਬਰਸ ਆ ਕਨਸਰਨਡ Yeah, this is just the kind of the latest issue here. Like who knows, it may improve his poll numbers, it may not. His poll numbers are so bad right now that, you know, I don't think that this will really impact it one way or another. I think it's just kind of a another straw on the camel's back and at this point I think all of us in Canada or especially those of us who who observe politically are wondering which straw is going to finally break the camel's back. Hmm. I remember when when Trudeau was made liberal leader back in 2014 it was like a coronation because his father was one of the most transformative prime ministers in Canadian history Pierre Trudeau introduced multiculturalism in Canada he dealt with the FLQ crisis the separatism crisis and and I think that Justin has tried really hard to live up to the image of his father and I think that was probably one of the biggest failures in his life that he never got to that level of prominence he's definitely is notorious as his father but definitely not as popular as a prime minister wow okay he doesn't have the same cachet and the same sort of allure that he once had I think the Canada's kind of fallen out of love with Trudeau like Trudeau mania is over I think Trudeau mania is over um wow okay that is going to be one of my key takeaways from this episode You know, now that we've discussed the political climate in which Trudeau made the accusations and the manner in which he did so, I think I want to flip things a bit here. I want to ask you about India's accusations about there being a climate of violence and atmosphere of intimidation about Canada harboring anti-India elements and terrorists. Just just think about it. We've had, you know, smoke bombs thrown uh, at the mission. we've had our consulates you know uh, violence in front of them individuals have been uh, targeted and intimidated there are posters put up about people uh, so uh, tell me do you consider this normal but for starters please allow me to share my surprise i was actually very surprised to learn that ottawa does not particularly view khalistan advocates and supporters as a security threat to itself despite the 1985 air india bombing remaining the worst terrorist attack in your history so my question to you is this how do we explain successive canadian administrations actively choosing to not securitize the minority sikh community to not frame their activities as existential threats to canada say for instance the manner in which the bush administration did with muslims in the aftermath of 911 so that is a good thing but in that regard does that make canada an exception on the global stage i think it's important to look at the palestinian issue from a canadian lens because most canadians even to this day don't know what it is right. most canadians and i'm saying most white canadians you know either aren't aware of what it is or just have really no idea of the deeper meaning of the Khalistan movement to the Sikh people. I knew what it was in high school because there's a lot of Punjabis in my high school and you oh. know, I had a lot of Sikh friends and they told me what it was. 
Canada definitely doesn't take it as serious as the Indian government. So we don't we don't see it that way because it's it's not something we've lived. I think Canada views the movement as a lot smaller than it is. People at Guevara's fl- waving flags and making speeches and posters written in languages that that most white Canadians don't understand. Hmm. And it's it really has gone under the radar. A lot of the pro-Calistan posters are written in Punjabi. They're not in English. A lot of this stuff is unknown outside of the Sikh community. Right. A lot of Canadians aren't aware of and they don't really care. Aside from the Air India situation, there hasn't been any any substantial violence in Canada when it comes to Khalistan. We kind of view it as a, sort of a, a foreign political viewpoint. Hmm. Plus, 1985 was a long time ago. I'm 46. I barely remember Air India. And I think that, you know, a lot of people my age, it, it, it doesn't have the same meaning as it does to people who are either older or are personally impacted by it. It's been 38 years since the bombing of Air India Flight 182. The plane traveling from Montreal to London exploded off the Irish coast, killing all 329 people on board. 280 of them Canadian. But a new poll from the Angus Reid Institute has revealed nine in 10 Canadians had little to no knowledge of the bombing with more than half of those under the age of 35 saying they've never heard of it. By and large in Canada, we see the Palestine movement, but then we see it within it, there's kind of like a, a terrorist element that is kind of separated from everyone else, that not everybody shares those uh, opinions and ideals. And I think that's how Canada has rationalized it. It just says not all Sikhs are Palestinians, not all Palestinians are terrorists. Just as not all Sikhs are Palestinians, not all Palestinians are terrorists. Well, okay, now there is an objective take, but I'm certain you'll understand that a lot of people can't or rather don't want to view it as objectively, you know, because it's personal to them. I mean, for a moment, okay, this is about us. If this had happened to any other country, how would they react to it? I I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Let's not normalize what is happening in Canada. You know, what is happening in Canada, had it happened anywhere else? Do you think the world would have taken it with equanimity? If it had happened to any other country, would they have taken it, uh, you know, so calmly? Perhaps maybe even by virtue of my own nationality, maybe this is personal to me as well. So please, allow me to make this personal for you. Um, (laughs) Consider this false corollary. If the Quebec sovereignty movement had the same history of violence, of insurgency and of counterinsurgency that the Khalistan movement has had in India, do you think that Canada would have tolerated the free expression of Quebec sovereignty abroad? Well, I think it's it's interesting you brought up that because the FLQ, the Front of Liberation to Quebec, which is the group that was fighting for Quebec independence, they actually, it's it's not something that's really known outside of Canada. We call it the October crisis. It was October 1970 when FLQ terrorists kidnapped a Canadian politician and a British uh, diplomat. They ended up murdering the Canadian politician and freeing the diplomat, which, you know, which was a situation that was governed over by, ironically enough, Pierre Trudeau, which is Justin Trudeau's father. Hmm. The eldest son of former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau was sounding a bit like his father today. 18-year-old Justin Trudeau is now a student at a community college in Montreal. It's one of many Quebec colleges gearing up for a referendum next week on the question of Quebec's place in Canada. Justin's position is clear, but as Neil MacDonald reports, Trudeau the Younger likely won't be as successful in arguing his point as was Trudeau the Elder. Arguing the federal case at Collège Jean Brébeuf today was the son of its most famous alumnus. Le Canada ne chie pas sur le Québec. Justin Trudeau and his team were lonely voices for the Confederation. 
lonely and unpopular. And his opponents, who want a fast track to independence, were cheered before they'd even uttered a word. Later, with a trademark family shrug, the young Trudeau said he doesn't much care what his peers think of his views. It is an interesting corollary because, you know, you, you have a, a, a sovereignty movement in Canada which murders a Canadian and kidnaps a foreign national. And then 50 years, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, a large part of Canada's opposition in the parliament is made up of a, a Quebec secessionist party. Canada, I think, was quick to understand that not all Quebec sovereignists were terrorists and murderers enough for the fact that Quebec separatism is a legitimate ideology in Canada these days. Right, because somebody's terrorist is another person's martyr. And it's interesting to map how differently the secessionist movements in both of our countries have panned out, because you say that in yours, the Quebecois sovereignty movement is a legitimate one. But I don't think that that can ever be the case with the Khalistani movement in India, not least because of the history of violence, insurgency and counterinsurgency, you know. Okay, moving on. I now want to ask you what this episode tells us about where India and Canada stand in the hierarchy of international power politics, right? Does simple realist geopolitics, the idea that nations will always look out for themselves and their best interests, does that explain why Western countries did not, you know, fall behind Trudeau? They look at India as a as an important counterweight to China. Does that explain why Trudeau might have axed his own foot, sort of, in overestimating Western support for his cause? It's an interesting dynamic because the big story the past couple of days was that Canada tried to get our allies to stand with us to condemn India, but they refused because, you know, India is seen around the world as an important counter-agent to China. Right. Some press asked the Australian Prime Minister comment on this, and he refused to comment. The UK issued a statement that didn't mention India at all. So I think that Canada is coming to the grips of the world cares more about India than Canada right now. And I think that Prime Minister Modi understands that. And I think that Canada is in a really poor position right now because, you know, if these allegations are true, if if India did send someone to murder a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, that's terrible. Hmm. But at the same time, well, the rest of the world's like, you know, Canada show us some proof or, you know, our winning horse is India. Like we, we need India a lot more than we need Canada right now. And plus, Canada's image on the world stage is so low that I don't think you know. I don't think anybody takes Canada seriously. I don't think they have for a while. Wow, that's hush. I think that India is far more important on the geopolitical stage right now than Canada is. And I think the Allies have already you know have already declared their winner. I think that they're troubled by the accusations, hmm. but at the same time, I don't think that they're going to risk losing India or an accusation from the Canadian Prime Minister. I think there's Mm. far too much at stake for the UK and the US to do that. If Canada and India relations go completely south, just like I said before, I just don't think Canada matters in the world stage as much as it did. And I don't think that Canada's opinion about India will really make a difference when it comes to US foreign policy. Like Mm. India is an island of democratic stability relatively in that region of the world. You know, same thing with Israel. Israel is an island of democracy in the Middle East. Right. I, I think that losing India is far more important than, than appeasing, you know, the hurt feelings of Canada and, and a Canadian citizen that was killed on their soil. Wow. Okay. So that's got to be harsh for Ottawa to come to terms with, right? Um, 
But that raises the question, would things have been any different had Trudeau laid out the evidence? Because a case that can be argued here is that even if Trudeau had laid out the evidence, it wouldn't be all too different. What do you make of that? I think a large reason why the world stage wasn't really to jump on Canada's bandwagon was the fact that there was no proof. Right. They didn't provide the same docket of evidence that Turkey provided when Jamal Khashoggi was killed on their soil. I think that Prime Minister Trudeau has sort of floated very well with the just trust me policy on Canadians, but I don't hmm. think that's going to work on the larger stage. Right. I don't see Canada coming forward with a dossier full of photos and maps and linking webs and stuff. I think that Canada is just going to continue to say, trust me on this. It's a policy that's worked for them before domestically here in Canada. And I think that they're going to get a little bit of a rude awakening when they realize that the world isn't going to fall for it as much as Canadians have. Hmm. It's going to remain as nebulous as it is, and it's going to remain a, a thorn in the side of Canada-India relations for a long time. Even if things improve, this is always going to be there, I think. Yeah, you're right. It does look like this is going to remain. And so I want to ask you how far you think we're willing to go with this. You know, your trade minister cancelled her visit to India. We've issued rival travel advisories. We've expelled diplomats in tit-for-tat moves. Canada and India have been talking on and off since 2010 about a renewed trade agreement, but Canada announced just ahead of this G20 summit that it was pausing those talks. India has warned its citizens to avoid travelling to parts of Canada a day after Ottawa warned Canadians travelling to India to exercise a high degree of caution. India is demanding the withdrawal of Canadian diplomats. That's according to a report in the Financial Times. The report also says Delhi is threatening to revoke diplomatic immunity for any Canadian staffers who fail to leave the country by October 10th. But given the economic ties between our two countries, given the massive inflows of trade, um, given the large Indian diaspora that resides in Canada, the large number of Indian students who attend Canadian universities, how far do you think we are willing to go down this hill? And how far do you think we can afford to go down this hill? Canada is an important trading partner for India. Canada exports goods to India, including pulses, lentils, and beans, and peas, timber, pulp and paper, mining products. Those are big, you know, those are big exports that Canada sends to India. Hmm. Even before Prime Minister Trudeau, Prime Minister Stephen Harper had a good relationship with Prime Minister Modi. For example, it was under Harper that Canada started exporting uranium to India again. Yeah. Those were halted after India's nuclear program was was fueled by uranium-made and Canadian-made reactors, which right. was kind of the beginning of the cooling of relations between our two countries. Those, those improved under Prime Minister Harper. I think that he made some definite overtures towards that. Right. I think that things will slowly go back to the way they are. I was reading a statement from the Indian government about the the visa closure thing saying, oh, yeah, Canada is an insignificant part of our visa business. I don't think that's really true. I think that India relies a lot more on Canadian tourism and Canadian visits ranging from people sending money home to people visiting and, and funding their tourism industry. Hmm. I think that it's it's a relationship I think it's too important for 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 both Canada and India to just abandon. Yeah, you're right. This is a relationship that is too important to just abandon, but yet here we are. And while the Khalistan issue is a legitimate thorn in India-Canada relations, I can't help but feel that there is a little more to this, you know, almost as if there's something personal between Trudeau and Modi. Now, there's no veracity to this, but I think there's a fair question here, which is, can relations ever go back to normal until both Trudeau and Modi are in office? 
looking ahead, I don't think as long as Modi and Trudeau are in office, I don't think you're ever going to see our two countries get back to that same again. I think that we definitely need a reset. Hmm. Will that reset come with a new government in Canada? We don't know. Like I said, Prime Minister Trudeau's poll numbers are, are, are lower than you know most prime ministers in recent history. Right. Our our next federal elections not for a couple of years, but if he decides to to call it quits between now and then, or if or if Jagmeet Singh decides to cancel his agreement with the current government and force an election, then you know maybe things will reset. But I think hmm. that you're going to need that hard reset to set relations between our two countries, you know, back on the same track again. Right. But I'm not sure if that reset is going to come from India, at least, because, you know, it looks like Prime Minister Modi is here to stay. Okay, now, because I'm a journalist, I have to ask you this. What was the reaction in your newsroom like when Trudeau made these accusations? How taken aback were you? Or, you know, on the other hand, did it feel like, okay, this adds up, this makes sense, perhaps that this was due in some way? Once the prime minister made this announcement, it, it caused a lot of things to click. I like we're sitting in our bureau office in Ottawa, and we're seeing the news, and me and my fellow reporters are going like, "Oh yeah, okay, that's why the prime minister skipped out on the leaders' dinner that Modi was throwing during the G20. That's right. why the prime minister refused to shake his hand. That's why there was such a cold relationship between the two, because the whole time the prime minister was stewing, knowing that." or at least assuming that Modi had ordered an assassination on Canadian soil, quickly answer questions like, why is Trudeau acting this way? Okay, that's why, that's why. Yeah, even my mind went to the G20 and, you know, how strange and cool the dynamic between Trudeau and Modi seemed to be there. Okay, Mr. Pasifim, um, I think we've come to my last question of the day. And this is regarding ordinary people, ordinary sex in Canada, because of course, this is an international incident and it has all the makings of one. And yet there are very real people involved here. And it seems that there are going to be very real consequences. How do you think ordinary sex living in Canada are going to be affected by all of this? That question is definitely answerable this morning with the fact that you can't get a visa to visit India anymore from Canada. Right. Anybody hoping to visit home or to visit family or, or even just travel to India on a vacation, they're definitely going to be disappointed with this. India's decision to halt visas has hit Indian-born Canadians the hardest. Many now cut off from loved ones back home, shocked and suddenly shut out. I have family. I have a whole family. I'm the only one here. I grew up in Brampton, which is a, a town with a very, very large Punjabi diaspora. Hmm. The Punjabi culture is very ingrained in the in sort of the fabric of Brampton. Like, you know, my high school, I was the only Gora in my class. I grew wow, up with a okay. lot of Punjabi friends, a lot of Hindu friends, a lot of friends from all over the Indian subcontinent. Right. The thing with the Sikh population in Canada, you know, most most of them here are hardworking they don't care about politics. The majority of Canadian six aren't, you know, they are political. Hmm. All they want is a better life for their family and sort of, you know, build a home for themselves in Canada. Right. We have Sikh politicians, Sikh businessmen. Some of the most powerful businessmen in this country are Punjabi. I was speaking to some Sikh leaders the other day for one of my stories. And kind of the, the one thing that they're worried about is they don't want to be, they don't want to be an scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. After the Air India bombing, you know, a lot of people painted all, all Sikhs as terrorists, which is to me is just as fair as painting all, all Muslims as terrorists after September 11th. Exactly. And, you know, Sikhs worked hard to 
establish themselves as part of Canada and part of Canadian society. And I think that people would be hesitant to paint all Sikhs with the same brush. Hmm. I think that's what, what normal everyday people in Canada worry about that, you know, just for the actions of the activists that they're, everybody's going to be painted the same. Hmm. It's interesting to hear you say that because that's also my concern with all of this. Ordinary Sikhs are going to be painted as separatists, as secessionists, as threat to the unity and integrity of my country, of India. What even is Khalistan, Sardur Singh says? We don't know, it's all politics, and we are the ones who suffer. No ma'am, there is no Khalistani movement in Punjab. I'm proud to be feel an Indian. There is a need of the, uh, right now, the employment. Near elections, they have just an election ploy. Let's talk about Khalistan. Let's create a mess in the people. I think there is no need to repeat uh, the demands of Khalistan. We are happy. Um, okay, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Thank you so much, Mr. Pasifume, for joining me on this podcast today. Um, thank you so much for taking out the time to do so. And I've genuinely enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. No, I, I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Thank you so much. Anytime. With that, we've come to the end of episode one. Thank you for listening in. And a special thanks to Mr. Brian Pasifume for taking out the time to join me on this podcast. I hope you can catch part two of this episode, an interview with Dr. Aaron Ettinger, Professor of Political Science at Carlton University, which shall be out soon. Thank you, and I hope you have a good day.